But if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, I'm going to begin reading there, and we'll read through Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we receive this, that we would receive it as what it is, the Word of God, your very Word, superintended by your Spirit for your church. It was written by holy men long ago as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit for edification so that we might know what you say. We pray that we would receive it as such, that we would understand what it is that the apostles sang in this exhortation, not only to the Hebrew Christians in the first century, but what the Spirit is saying in this exhortation to your church in every age. We pray that as we look at this topic of the necessity of good works, that what's being said in this analogy about land that bears fruit and land that bears thorns and thistles, that you would turn on the lights in our dark minds, that you would cause us to understand your word, that you would work in our hearts so that we rejoice and repent, so that we tremble at your threatenings, and that we're comforted with your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the analogy that is set before us in verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 6, if you look there, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and nearer to being cursed, and its end to be burned. That analogy set before us, in this analogy, the apostle is making clear that those professing Christians, those church members who commit full and final apostasy, were never really believers in the first place. Now, I dealt with the text in verses 4 through 6 in the last week, so if you want to go back and see that, you can see more of the connection there. But what I have been at pains to demonstrate and what I believe the Apostle has been at pains to demonstrate as he started this exhortation in verse 11 of chapter 5, if you remember, Hebrews is often a series of 
if you will, here's an explication of doctrine, here's what I'm teaching you, expositing to you doctrinally, and then here comes an exhortation, here's what you're supposed to do with that, here's how you reply to that, he goes back and forth to that. In chapter 5, 1 through 10, he's laid out, here's who Christ is as the great high priest, and then in chapter 5, verse 11 and following, he says, now, Here's the problem for you. As, even as I get into this discussion of Christ as a great high priest, it's difficult to teach you this, not because it's so complicated a doctrine, but because you're so dull of hearing. You've become sluggish and lazy. And so I want you to wake up, pay attention, listen to what God has to say, start to grow up and mature. And as we walk through that for the last over a month now, I suppose, we come to this analogy. And I touched on this analogy last week as it pertains to verses 4 through 6 in the connection that what he's saying in verses 4 through 6 is not that there is a possibility of losing salvation. What he's saying in verses 4 through 6 is that within the visible church or the body of Christ, we have people who are true believers and we have people who are false professors. It's hard for us sometimes to identify that the difference between the two, we have False professors, they're baptized, they participate in the Lord's Supper, they might be excited about the Word of God, and they might for a time show forth some kind of fruit that looks real. But they eventually commit apostasy. They fully and finally fall away. He says, we have those kind of false professors in the church. Be warned, you might be one of them, he says. So he's getting at. Your laziness, in other words, your backsliding, may not be a temporary backsliding. Your backsliding may in fact be full and final apostasy. Wake up, pay attention. Don't let the threat go by you, is what he's getting at. Start growing in maturity. Start looking to the Lord Jesus. Don't take comfort in the fact that your backsliding is just merely backsliding, because you don't know. So look to the Lord. Now I dealt with that in some detail last week, and so I'm not gonna go over it again, but what I said last week that I wanna connect to today is this. How do I know he's not talking about people who are Losing their salvation? How do I know he's talking about false professors in the church who look like the real deal but never really were? Because when he comes to this analogy in verses 7 and 8, he's going to begin to demonstrate that there are really two kinds of people upon whom the rain falls or the word of God falls in, if you will, the visible body of Christ. And then next week, when he comes to verse 9, where I'm going to look next week in verses 9 through 12, he's going to say, now in your case, beloved, we're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, the things I listed in verses 4 through 6 don't belong to salvation. So he's wanting to make this clear. And he's wanting to make clear that those who commit full and final apostasy were never really believers in the first place. He's just been arguing that there are people in the church who look like the real deal. They even experience the operations of the Holy Spirit. In some sense, they experience external blessings of the new covenant. They're baptized, professing believers, church members. They're participating in the Lord's Supper. They may even really like hearing preaching and benefit in some way from its wisdom, yet they're not true Christians. They are now and always have been false professors. He drives that message home with this analogy of two kinds of land. There is land on which the rain falls and bears good fruit, and that land is blessed. That land represents true believers. Their hearts are soft soil that receives the word of God and bears good fruit. Then there's the land on which the rain falls and bears thorns and thistles and is cursed and is near to being burned. That land represents false professors, those with mere temporary faith but never true saving faith. Their hearts are hard 
and rocky soil that does not really receive the word of God, and any fruit that appears to be born is temporary. Temporary. Ultimately, you only get thorns and thistles. You only get rotten fruit. Now, when we look at the analogy, we're meant to see a distinguishing characteristic that differentiates these two kinds of lands. There's a distinguishing characteristic that tells us about these two kinds of land. What is the distinguishing characteristic of these two kinds of land? In one sense, the land is the same. It's just the land that is the visible church. It's a reference to Christ's local church or the visible church, if you will, to those who regularly hear the word of God. In that sense, the land is just the same land. We're all created image bearers of God who were fallen in Adam, and here we all are together hearing the word of God. The rain is poured out on the whole land in the same amount and in the same way. It's a reference to the word of God being preached. You're all image bearers of God gathered together hearing the same word of God preached together. In that sense, the land is the same and the rain is the same. The word of God is being preached. All of us in Christ's visible church are receiving the same word. We've all been blessed to be among those who have, in God's kind providence, received the word of God. The cultivation is the same. The Lord cultivates the land through his appointed messengers. Some sow and some water. But we're all being cultivated by God's ministers who till and sow and water. So what is the distinguishing characteristic between these two kinds of land? What's the distinguishing characteristic? Well, here it is. One bears fruit and so receives a blessing. The other bears thorns and thistles and is cursed. And here's the point. Good fruit, please pay attention to this, good fruit is necessary to salvation. Good fruit is necessary to salvation. If you bear good fruit, you receive a blessing, a reward. You are and will be saved. If you do not bear good fruit, if you do not bear good fruit, you are cursed. You are and will be damned. Good fruit is necessary. And his point here is that good fruit distinguishes false professors on the one hand from true believers on the other. True believers bear good fruit. False professors do not bear good fruit. I want you to hear what I'm saying because it might shake you a little as I say it. Good works are necessary to your salvation. Did you catch that? Good works are necessary to your salvation. No good works, no salvation. But there are three questions, at least, that minimally follow that kind of statement. So, here's the first one. What is good fruit? What do we mean, good fruit or good works? What do we mean by that? What is good fruit? Two, in what sense is good fruit necessary? You're saying it's necessary to my salvation, but in what sense is it necessary? And three, why does God reward good fruit or good works? Why does God reward it? So those three I'm going to deal with today. There's a fourth one that I'll deal with next week, but let me start with these. What is good fruit? Well, note the language in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 7. For land, that's just an analogy for the visible church that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, which is an analogy for the hearing of the word of God, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Notice this about the good fruit. The fruit is useful or acceptable to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Now you might say, I don't know what that means, but actually I think you do know what this analogy means if you just stop and give it a little bit of time and thought. 
Let me extend the analogy out a bit. If I plant a vine for grapes, then I expect edible grapes. Or unless it's wine grapes, I expect good wine grapes. As the farmer, I plant the vine, I tend the vine, I water the vine, I till the soil where the vine is before I plant it, actually, so that I can receive fruit that is of use to me. It's of use to me. Thus, when I see a plant that produces fruit, I bless that plant. I approve of that plant. We eat a lot of grapes in our house. Just so you know, newsflash, you didn't know that. You probably don't care, but we do. My son particularly, too many grapes. But we eat so many grapes in our house. For some reason, the grapes that come from Delano, when my wife brings home the grapes and it says Delano on the bag, they are just far better than all the other grapes we buy. Those grapes are so good that every time I drive by Delano, I just want to bless the whole city. <laughs> right? God bless you for these grapes. God approves of good fruit, of fruit that's useful. Conversely, when a vine produces bad fruit or thorns and thistles, we see that vine as harmful. That vine as not useful. We spit its sour and rotten fruit out of our mouths. We want to curse it. We want none of it. That vine is worthless and unacceptable. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, unacceptable, and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So by bearing good fruit, we mean the vine is fulfilling the purpose for which it is planted. That's what we mean. We say you need to bear good fruit. We're saying the vine is fulfilling the purpose for which it is planted. By thorns and thistles, we mean the vine is not fulfilling the purpose for which it is planted. It's not fulfilling it. This kind of imagery is not new to Hebrews. You'll see it in Isaiah. Keep your hand in Hebrews 6 and look at Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. God will here in Isaiah 5 compare his Old Testament church, Israel, to a vineyard. But remember, the prophets are writing in a time in which they are taking God's law and they're taking the history of Israel, what they've done in their lives under God's law, under the Mosaic Covenant, and they're saying, here's what God's law required of you, here's how you've lived, and they're comparing those two things like a prosecuting attorney and showing Israel her error and why judgment is coming upon her, her sin, and why she will be judged. And then they also point forward to the hope of restoration coming for her. But here is a passage in which Isaiah the prophet is judging Israel, and he compares them to a vine. Look what it says. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, that's, that's the Lord, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. See, the Lord planted a vineyard. That vineyard is Israel, his Old Testament church. He tilled the land. He planted it. He built a watchtower to care for it. He did everything that was necessary for his people. And what did the vine produce? Wild grapes. In other words, sour, rotten grapes, bad fruit. Look at verse 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? See, the vine produced bad fruit. It's akin to thorns and thistles. I did everything that I needed to do for you, and you yielded wild grapes 
And what will be their end for producing wild grapes? What is coming for them in response to their production of bad fruit? Look at verses 5 and 6. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. In other words, I'm not going to care for it any longer. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. See, God's judgment is coming. God's curse and wrath is coming for his people. Now, what's meant by them producing wild grapes? Or as it says here, thorns and thistles, briars, if you will. What's meant by that? Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Notice, I'm not making up the fact that the analogy is with Israel. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, what it means by them producing bad fruit or thorns and thistles is that they were ungodly and unrighteous people. Specifically, they were spiritually adulterous or committing idolatry. They were violating God's law again and again and again. In spite of all God's care for them, they rejected him and they rejected his law. That's because they were spiritually dead, spiritually dead. Now, how do I know that? That's why this language is picking up the curse language in Genesis 3. If you notice that, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. Thorns and thistles is language from the curse that we read in Genesis 3. What happens as a result of the fall into sin? In Adam's fall, sin we all, and what does God do in response to that sin? He curses his creation. He curses the land so that it bears thorns and thistles. It's a way of saying that the wages of sin is death. Sometimes we think of sin, a rebellion against God's law, as life. Sin somehow entices us, encourages us, that life is found there. But actually, sin is death. It kills us. It destroys us. That's why God, who is in himself life, must obliterate anything sinful. For life destroys death. God is life and righteousness. The wages of sin is death, and not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death and damnation. I don't think we think enough about holiness as being light and sinfulness as being death. And these folks in Israel were demonstrating that they were still under the curse of death. Now, this was not because God failed to tell them the truth. God failed in nothing because they're sinners, because they're sinners. Look at what Jesus says about this, actually. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. You can keep your hand on Isaiah because I'm going to have you come back there. But look at Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to go to verse 33. Jesus is telling some parables, and he says this in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And Does that sound like Isaiah 5, doesn't it? It's meant to. And leased it to tenants and went into another country. It's, he left it to his prophets, priests, and kings, if you will, to his people. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. He's talking about the way they treated the prophets. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, 
He sent his son to them. Now here's Jesus introducing himself. He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus sums up unbelieving Israel by saying this, the Lord gave you every opportunity. He sent you prophets and you killed them. He sent you more prophets and you killed them. He sent you his own son and you killed him. You're an unfruitful vineyard. You're cursed and damned. So what can change the situation for Israel? That's their state, old, the Old Testament church. What can change their situation? What can remove the curse from them, the barrenness of the vine, if you will, and bring them blessing? What can cause them to bear good fruit? Isaiah chapter 32. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 12. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Why, why are you going to beat your breasts for it? This is a kind of woe, in a sense, for what's happening. For the soil of my people. Why? Because, listen, look what he says. It's growing up in thorns and briars. That should cause you to lament. It's growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. You hear what's happening? The very fertile hill upon which God planted his vine is now become barren, like famine has broken out, and the vine produces nothing but thorns and briars. Israel is in judgment for sin. Now listen to what happens, verse 15, until, until, pay attention to that word, until, the state of things is about to change, until the people finally get their act together. Is that what it says? Until. They clean up the mess until they recognize the depth of their sin and repent, and then I'll do good things for them. Nope. Pay attention to what it says. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Remember, they had no justice and righteousness in Isaiah 5. Then it'll abide, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Now, when does the state of things change? When the Holy Spirit is poured out from upon high. And who pours out the Holy Spirit from upon high? If you remember this, it ought to bring you right back to Luke 24 and verse 49 when Jesus tells them that you will be clothed with power from on high, says the apostles. And you will be my witnesses. And you'll preach the gospel to the ends of the earth when you're clothed with power from on high. Stay in Israel until that happens. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 and in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he comes back to the same idea. But you'll be clothed with power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When will this happen? When the Holy Spirit is poured out. And when is the Holy Spirit poured out? When the Son of God, true Israel, the true vine, the faithful one, comes and fulfills God's law 
in every way that we failed to and pays the penalty for the fact that we were bearing thorns and thistles apart from him for us at the cross and raises from the dead conquering sin and death and bringing in life and ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns and we're told in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost by Peter that when Jesus went to the throne he poured out the Holy Spirit from on high and when that happened thus begins the new creation in which we now become this fruitful vine. The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, he's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit from on high. He is the Spirit-anointed Christ who will save his people and pour out the Holy Spirit on his people and make all things new. He is the one who will bless them. Thus, listen to this, all good fruit, all good fruit comes from Jesus by his Spirit. By his Spirit, look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. You're thinking, you're still dealing with the first question, my goodness. John chapter 15. But you need to see that this language is all over Scripture. Verse 1, listen to what Jesus says. Contrast what Jesus says with what you've read in Isaiah 5 about Israel, the Old Testament church. Jesus speaking of himself, one of the I am statements. You guys know there are I am statements in, in John, ego in me, I am. I am the true vine. The tr he's the true Israel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. What's he getting at? He's the true vine. There are lots of folks in the visible body of Christ, but only those who are vitally and spiritually united to Christ. When I say vitally, I mean they have a living faith. And when I say spiritually, I mean by the working of the Holy Spirit. United to Christ. Only those who are vitally and spiritually united to Christ through faith produce good fruit. Only those. Those in the visible body of Christ who do not bear good fruit are not abiding in Christ and thus are cut off and cast into the fire. So good fruit is from Christ. It is from being vitally and spiritually united to him by the Holy Spirit through faith. But what is the good fruit? We know from whom it comes. What is it? Well, it's the fruit that the Holy Spirit works in you. Let me give you some understanding of that. First, the good fruit is new birth in Christ. First, the good fruit is what we call regeneration, being born again, new birth in Christ, being a new creation. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, the Spirit tills the soil of your heart. He takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He gives you a soft heart. He gives you spiritual life. So new life, new birth, the new creation, a new heart is the first good fruit of the Holy Spirit. Second, the good fruit of the Spirit is faith. Faith. He is the Spirit of faith. He gives you the gift of faith. If you didn't know faith is a gift, then you need to go back and read Philippians 1.29. I 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's a gift. He gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. He gives you faith so that you trust Christ and rest upon him alone for salvation. And through this faith in Christ, you are justified. You're forgiven your sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and declared righteous in him, credited with his good works. So the first fruit there is new birth. The second fruit is faith. The third good fruit of the Spirit is holiness. Holiness. He is the Spirit of holiness. He causes you to delight in and walk in God's law. He transforms you into Christ's likeness. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will take the law that was formerly written on tablets of stone and I'll write it on your heart. Now we could say in some sense, all of us are born with the law written on our hearts, but not in a sense that we want to keep it. What he's talking about in the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following is that he'll write the law on our hearts in the sense that we now want to keep it. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'll take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my law, etc. He transforms you into Christ's likeness. He sanctifies you and makes you holy. We talk about, we know the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, don't we? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's the fruit of who? The Spirit. It isn't the fruit of your sincere faith. It isn't the fruit of your deep repentance. It isn't the fruit of any of that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. He is the Spirit of holiness. He's the one working this in you. Thus, fourth, the good fruit of the Holy Spirit is your good works. Hear that? So it's new birth, it's faith, it's holiness, it's your good works, fruit of the Spirit. He has created you in Christ Jesus for good works that you should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. These are the external results of the internal transformation, and he has appointed you to them. Finally, well, let me say this, about one more thing about external good works. These external works are done according to God's law. In other words, his word defines what they are. They're done in faith, and they're done to God's glory. That's what differentiates them from the good works that are helpful to us, if you will, horizontally, in relationship with one another that an unbeliever will do, but they're not honoring the Lord because they're not done in faith and for his glory. The only good works that you do that way are, are the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, the good fruit of the Spirit is your perseverance and assurance in faith. Perseverance and assurance in faith are the good fruit of the Spirit. He gives you faith that perseveres. He preserves you in that. And he gives you assurance in faith. Now, assurance is not of the substance of faith. I'm going to deal with that next week. But assurance is the gift of the Holy Spirit for believers. He is interceding in you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He brought you the announcement that you've been adopted as sons of the Father in Christ. He testifies to your spirit that you're children of God. So we understand that good fruit is from the Holy Spirit as he unites us to Christ. Thus, good fruit is necessary to the Christian. Necessary. If there is no good fruit, then there is no vital and spiritual union to Christ through faith. But that leads to a second question. Here's the second question. In what sense is good fruit necessary to Christian salvation? In what sense is it necessary to Christian salvation? See, in what sense are good works necessary? To say something is necessary is not sufficient. And some of you saw what I did there. I can tell you good works are necessary, but that still leaves you with several questions, doesn't it? 
Why does that leave you with questions? Because I have not told you how they are necessary or in, in what sense they are necessary. It is true that you are not, you are not, and you will not be saved if you do not bear good fruit. That's true. If you do not do good works, you are not saved and you will not be saved. If you have no good works, then you have no saving faith. You might profess faith, but it is temporary, phony, hypocritical faith. You might go to church, you might be baptized, you might serve, you might give. You might enjoy sermons, yet it might all be external, an external show of righteousness and nothing more. And you may be self-deceived even in that. It is dead faith, not the living faith and saving faith given to you by the Holy Spirit. That's precisely what James is saying in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Understand that. His point isn't that you're not justified by faith alone. His point is that you're not justified by dead faith. And dead faith always remains alone. Living faith never remains alone. So good works, good fruit, is necessary. But in one sense, what are they necessary for? Are they necessary as a condition that must be met in order to be united to Christ by the Spirit? Or are they necessary as a consequence of being united to Christ by the Spirit through faith? In other words, do good works or does good fruit come before or after you're united to Christ by the Spirit through faith? Well, friends, good works are necessary, and they necessarily come after you're united to Christ by the Spirit through faith. Good works are a necessary consequence of saving faith, not a necessary condition. They're not, if you will, to be really technical, an antecedent condition to saving faith. They don't come before saving faith. They follow saving faith. Good works are the consequence of being united to Christ by the Spirit through faith. Good works are the fruit, not the root. Christ is the vine. He is the one producing good fruit. Apart from him, you can do nothing. The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit of God. If you have not the Spirit, you have not his fruit. If you have the Spirit, you have his fruit. You're united to Christ by the Spirit through faith, and thus you bear good fruit. In other words, good fruit or good works are necessary, listen, as an evidence or fruit of a true and lively faith. Listen to how the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 16 and paragraph 2, states this. It's the same essential paragraph in the Westminster Confession of Faith and in the Savoy Declaration. If you're not familiar with those documents, they're from what we call the Puritan era, which isn't an entirely fair label, but 17th century documents. So listen to what it says. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glory God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. See, good fruit demonstrates 
there's a good root. Good works demonstrate that you are vitally and spiritually connected to the vine by the Spirit, who is Christ. Good works do not merit, please hear this, they do not merit you anything, not even one thing. Good works or good fruit earn you no grace and earn you no glory. I want to be clear about this. When I say they're necessary as a fruit, as an evidence, I am not saying that they merit you or earn you a thing. They earn you how much grace? None. How much glory? None. Zero. Your good works, your good fruit, merit or earn you not one portion of God's grace nor God's glorious reward, not even one drop from the ocean of his glorious grace is earned by your good works, not even a drop. That leads to our final question. If my good works merit nothing, then third, why does God reward good fruit? If they merit me nothing, why does God reward it? It's a good question, right? Because he does reward it. Why does God reward good fruit and good works with blessing? If you remember in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 7, if you look there again, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Why does God give a blessing to land that produces good fruit if that fruit, if those works earn us nothing? Well, note that language, God blesses the fruitful field. A blessing is not something earned. A blessing is something sovereignly and graciously given. Think about the analogy for a minute. God created the field. God owns the field. God condescended in the person of his son and did the good works for us, kept the law for us. Jesus, our mediator, also kept the penalty of the violation of the law for us. Jesus is the fruitful vine. God cultivated the field by sending his ministers to preach the word, by sending the Holy Spirit to do the heart-changing work. Some sowed and some watered, but God gave the growth. What of this whole thing is from us? If you're the land on whom the water or the rain poured and whom yields good fruit as a result of that, what of that is from you? You're not the vine, Christ is. You didn't create the land, you don't own the land, God does. You didn't pour out the water of the word, God did that. You didn't till the soil, God did that. You didn't give the growth, God did that. What did you do in the whole thing? Not one bit. It's all from God, all of grace, and all for his glory. So then why does he reward us? Why reward us? Are you ready for the spectacularly good news? The prophets say this, especially the minor prophets, almost at the end of, well, the end of two or three of the different minor prophets, they say this kind of thing. Why does God reward us? Because he wants to. Listen. Because he loves to love you. He delights over you. He sings joyfully over you. Listen to how John Owen sums up this blessing of our good fruit. That's what he says. Some think there is no use of these fruits unless they are meritorious. In other words, they, unless they earn us some meritorious of grace and glory, unless they earn us something. But God's acceptance of them here is called his benediction, his good word, his blessing. His blessing of them that bring them forth. Now a blessing cannot be merited or earned. It's an act of bounty and authority and has the nature of a free gift that cannot be deserved. What does a field merit of him by whom it is watered and tilled when it brings forth herbs, meat for his use? They're all but the fruits of his own labor, cost and pains. The field is only the subject that he has wrought upon or worked upon, and it is his own. All the fruits of our obedience are but the effects of his grace in us. 
We are a subject that he has graciously been pleased to work upon. Only he is pleased in a way of infinite condescension to own in us what is his own and to pardon what is ours. He blesses them in the preparations he has made to give them an everlasting reward. A reward it is indeed of grace and bounty, but it is still a reward, a recompense of reward. For although it be no way merited or deserved, and although there be no proportion between our works, duties, or fruits, and it, i.e. the reward, yet because they shall be owned in it, shall not be lost nor forgotten, and God therein testifies his acceptance of them, it is their reward. Now you may have been left with another question. What if I lack assurance of salvation because my fruit looks feeble, weak, and insufficient? What if that's a lacking of assurance I have? Well, I will deal with that assurance next week. Let me just say this today. I don't care how plentiful you think your good fruit is. It's insufficient. Your fruit is merely an evidence that you are vitally and spiritually connected to the vine who is Christ. Your fruit is never your life. The vine is your life. Christ is your life. Will you find your assurance in him? Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to bound in good fruit through our union with your Son by the Spirit, that we would look to him and trust in him. Prune us where it's necessary, Father. Bring your kind discipline where needed that we might bear more good fruit. And all things cause us to look to your Son, the true vine, our only hope, our life, our righteousness. For apart from him, we can do nothing. Pray, Father, for those here who are not vitally and spiritually united to Christ through faith. We pray that you would cause them to turn to Christ in faith and be saved. That they would recognize that their sin justly deserves condemnation. That they would see that your Son has taken that condemnation for them. They would trust him and be saved. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.